Amelena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. In 2017, sensitive information from about 140 million consumers in America was stolen as part of the Equifax data breach. We've seen this happen before in different companies, for example, Yahoo, and most recently Uber. Tara Wheeler, cybersecurity fellow at New America, explains what the Equifax breach was, its impact, and why the breach wasn't handled correctly. Tara explained how to set up an effective incident response and an incident detection system. These systems are crucial for handling and preventing breaches like this from happening. We also talked about incident response teams and what they're in charge of. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Tara Wheeler, Cybersecurity Fellow and Principal Security Advisor at Red Queen Technologies, is joining us today. Tara, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. It's so lovely to be here with you today. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about incident response. But first, to understand this, I want to start with the Equifax breach that happened recently. And for those that don't know what Equifax is, can you explain what it is and the type of data they have access to? So Equifax is a credit bureau in the United States, one of the big three, the other two being TransUnion and Experian. Equifax is a data storehouse that is used by financial institutions to determine the creditworthiness of people in the U.S. and around the world. It tends to be very consumer-focused, and what they do, the three large bureaus do, is either purchase or receive financial data and create indices of creditworthiness for people around the world, and mostly in the U.S. So this data, you would say, is highly sensitive and confidential because people's credit scores depend on this, right? Oh, without any hesitation. It's a huge issue to see any kind of breach happen like this in a, a company like Equifax. The issue is the people that have their data stored with any of these credit bureaus didn't opt into this situation. They didn't opt into having their information, the most delicate information about them, stored by these companies. It's a system that we're essentially born into, like a social security number, which incidentally has also been breached in the in the recent Equifax incursion. Yes. So even me, I at first, I didn't know. I'm probably part of Equifax. You are. Believe yeah, you are. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Like you said, I just go to a bank... I get a credit card and things like that. But behind the scenes, they work with Equifax and they get data and they send data there. One of the big three, yes. Uh, and what you'll see happening is as people engage in financial transactions that take time, specifically things like mortgages, rentals, leasing, anything involving your finances with the courts, that's information that is all reported to these credit bureaus. And so you don't have the option to say, I don't want this information stored there. And the major thing to remember here is as a result, Equifax and Experian TransUnion, these organizations are paid not by people to provide them with creditworthiness. They're paid by institutions to provide them with data on people. And what that makes you and me is not a consumer, not a client. We are not a customer of the credit bureaus. We are either victims or product. 
at this point. Mm -hmm. And that's the dangerous part about this. We didn't opt in. We have only the right to be upset when we've been violated in, in terms of our financial information, our confidentiality, and our capacity to do things as fundamental to our identities as buy a house or a car. And people have criticized the way that this breach that happened was handled. Can you explain some of the issues on this? Well, I can say that one of the very first issues that popped up, you know, I, as somebody that does incident response, knows that what's important is the rehearsal. Because as you practice, so shall you perform. And it was pretty apparent that Equifax had not rehearsed a lot of modern cybersecurity incident response. One of the very first things that happened, and I'm often hesitant to really deeply criticize you know, people in a situation like this, because it gets crazy when you're trying to handle a major breach like this. But one of the first things that happened was that people who were focused on getting information about whether or not they had been a victim of this breach or not were directed to a website that was actually not at the Equifax home site. It wasn't under the Equifax.com domain. Mm -hmm. And the major challenge there is You know, the very first thing you're doing is practicing poor security by using something that could so easily have been a phishing domain. And in fact, not a week after that, someone had put up a fake phishing domain, which was an educational one, spelled just slightly differently. I believe the, the original website was Equifax Security 2017, and he put up um, Security Equifax 2017 or 2017 Equifax Security. And if he had been a bad guy, He could have collected data from an incredible number of people that simply had no idea that, that they were mistyping something into a browser bar. Yeah. Um, instead, he used it as an educational tool to make sure that people would understand how problematic it was that Equifax was directing people away from their home site. Yeah, so they were they themselves essentially got confused with their own URLs and were directing to this fake. Yeah, it was a the problem here is that they were themselves almost training people to believe in phishing sites, and that's just so unbelievably problematic. Yeah, the gentleman who did it, his name was Nick Sweeting, and he's just a you know smart guy trying to help the situation. Ended up blowing up because Equifax had put up a website that wasn't under the Equifax.com domain name, which also meant, interestingly enough, that the SSL certificates, the TLS certificates that Equifax was using were not valid to tell whether or not you were at the correct Equifax site or not. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's just a major challenge. Yeah. Yes. So let's say there, I don't know their exact real URL is Equifax.com. The ideal scenario would have been for them to set up security.equifax.com or equifax.com. Exactly. But instead they opted to do something like equifaxsecurity2017.com. Exactly. And not only that, but the company's official Twitter account was for days. Yeah. In fact, I think it was that one tweet stayed up for nine days. The, the company's official Twitter account was pointing people to the wrong website. Yeah. And the part about that that's so interesting and challenging is it, it makes it so clear that in incident response, it's easy to make mistakes that uh, we're just human beings and it's easy to make these kinds of mistakes. And since it is that easy, you need to prepare in advance to get rid of any possibility of those easy mistakes. I mean, it would be very simple and I would actually highly recommend on a prescriptive level 
for companies to set up an incident site mm-hmm. in advance, practice what it means to to direct people to that website and say, we've screwed up. Here's a scenario in which we might have breached your information. And it can be a drill only, you know, behind the scenes. You just simply, you know, provide access to that URL for only a few people for testing purposes. But if you've done that, you've made sure that your certificates are in line, that your wording is proper, that you don't have any really embarrassing typos, and that you're actually directing your victims to a site that can help them instead of something that just points out how badly you're handling the situation. Before we go into more detail about what incident responses and the steps involved, I want to understand the people that are doing these attacks. In my research for this, I read that we're seeing large organized crime rings that are working like startups and innovating these attacks. Mm -hmm. Do you know the type of people doing this and their goal? Is it to sell data or just to make a statement of how weak some of our core systems are? Well, there's a Venn diagram of a lot of different motivations, right? We're humans. We don't have binary motivations. It is either this or the other. Mm-hmm. In fact, what we have are situations where people might be, uh, you know, they might 90% want to make money and 9% want to be patriots and 1% simply want to cause some mischief. And you're going to find that there's an overlap of motivations as opposed to a clear roadmap to when someone has or hasn't done something. And that's one of the reasons why we say attribution is so hard. Mm-hmm. In information security, because how do you know if somebody just wants to make some money, if they're doing it solely for the reason of engaging in cyber warfare, which now this year is a domain that has been recognized by the U.S. military as a separate arena of warfare. So it's very difficult to tell those things. And worse, there's a lot of reason to go after industrial control systems in the United States after major tech players in the U.S. as part of a campaign like that. Now, is that always happening without having the kinds of probabilities that we would all want? Because again, attribution is hard. I think people get a lot more heated up about, you know, was it China? Was it Russia? Yeah. There's a lot of desire sometimes to blame things on nebulous, faceless, you know, hoodie wearing hackers in a different country rather than sometimes our own screw-ups, which just, frankly, left a valuable server open to the internet, and then somebody sold the data off it. We don't know exactly what was going on inside Equifax, but we get an idea about what we were seeing in the news, that it took them a long time to report the breach to the users or the people. Let's talk now about an effective incident response setup. First of all, can you explain what incident response means? Well, it is an acknowledgement of human failure. Incident response is an acknowledgement that we cannot do security perfectly 100% of the time, and sooner or later, something bad is going to happen. It's not the most popular of disciplines in information security because to prepare for what is going to happen in the aftermath of a mistake, you have to admit that mistakes are going to happen. And that's not a popular thing to do in publicly traded companies, right? (laughs) You want to minimize the need for incident response as much as possible. And yet the nature of incident response is once something bad has happened, they're the team you call to clean up and handle the situation, to try to mitigate it as much as possible for people that aren't necessarily involved in the situation, like victims of a consumer data breach, like people in a different part of the company, perhaps, who are deeply affected by a screw-up in one part. Mm -hmm. A lot of incident response, in fact, almost all incident response I've seen is internally facing. Almost all the time, you find that something has gone wrong and you fix it internally, and it's not something most people ever really find out about. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a lot of secrets under the hood, and 
that is both good and bad. It's good because you end up getting a lot of practice for those times when there are serious major issues out there. It's bad because there's a great researcher here in Seattle. His name is Adam Shostak, and he uh, has done some work before on things called near misses. It's also very common in the aviation industry mm-hmm. to look at issues of near misses as opposed to actual problems, actual mistakes and flaws. A really good example, do you remember about a month ago, an airliner at San Francisco ended up having to not land because there was an aircraft on the runway already, and five seconds more of descent would have crashed two airliners into each other, two fully loaded airliners. Yeah. yeah. That, when the pilot pulled up and ended up saving the people that were on those airliners, that's a good example of what we call a near miss. And another good concept of a near miss in incident response and a great place to do those drills, were you Equifax or another company worried about that, when you have found out yourself internally, oh my gosh, and this is going to happen. It's just flat going to happen. Oh my gosh, we've left a server exposed and someone's, you know, we think someone has seen it, but no one's actually pivoted to one of the internal servers with, with sensitive data. You lock that machine down and you say to yourself, okay, oh Lord, what we just had was a near miss. We had a mistake. Mm -hmm. This was a problem and we fixed it. It looks like perhaps our IDS caught it. uh, One of our firewalls caught it. Some form of logging caught what was going on before the person could actually create any harm and create something like you might consider it like a reportable incident, publicly reportable, publicly disclosable, something that is covered under the need to tell people what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that can happen in financial and major institutions that handle things like PCI. So what you do is you look at that and say to yourself, all right, let's treat this as incident response. Let's go through this process and find out, you know, if the worst had happened, what would we have done in that situation? Did we have the number of people on call that we needed to? Is the formula, is the template for writing up the incident response clear and readable to somebody who's not in information security? And you ask yourself questions like that and go through that process again and again, using near misses to train you for the day when there's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every so often, that's exactly what's going to happen. We frequently find people in incident response are tasked from other areas inside a company. Often you'll get a dedicated team at a larger company. But it's think of it like the, the floor captain. Sooner or later, somebody has to hold a hand up and say, I'll take charge. Yeah, and I want to understand a little bit more about this core team. I mean, the whole company is, in a sense, responsible for incidents, but you're describing this to-go team? What are the backgrounds of these people? Is it a service type of engineering role? Are they software engineers, security? Is there a main characteristic? Well, they are people who will specialize in whether or not they've gone to school for it or not. They have some experience in or have specialized in DFIR, digital forensics and incident response. Okay. And what that means is after someone's broken in, they figure out where it happened and how to keep it from happening again. And will move the team or the company or the product from stage to stage, from the initial discovery of the incident. One of the most important initial questions, especially if you're in the middle of a live incident, is do we let the person who we know has gotten into the network stay there for a while? Do we let them stick around so that we can track their actions, figure out where they went, figure out the the real implications of what's just happened? Or do we pull the cord immediately? And that's a more complicated question than at first it might look. One of the first things you need to do, for instance, if you've got, you know, if you've got some people that have broken into the local post office, you may not actually want to arrest the first guy that you see, you know, on the security cameras. You may want to track them back to the lair and pick up, you know, all the goods they stole. And that's an initial kind of question that you ask yourself for as you start an incident response. Mm -hmm. 
One of the next things you need to do is you need to make absolutely sure that there is a clear line of authority and that that person has the capacity to push what they call the big red button. Anybody in any company, and I think uh, Toyota has been, been very famous for this one, um, has, anyone at Toyota has the right to stop the production line. And that's a really great example of how Toyota has prioritized if anyone there sees a problem, even the janitor, prioritize making sure that people stay safe, that any incidents are instantly handled, and that no one is ever blamed for stopping the line. So if you're somebody in a company and you're even not part of the incident response team and you see that there's an issue, you definitely need to be somebody who is willing and able and aware of who to go to. And your company needs to back you up on it. There you go. Yes. And after that, it all just gets murky and you have to do it case by case. <laughs> yeah. You know, is it a server breach? Is it a, you know, is a physical break in where a box got stolen? Has someone been listening in? Is it a man in the middle? Who, who knows what the, the kind of attack might be? But usually it involves somebody somewhere that they shouldn't belong. Yes. And that's actually one of the most important things about incident response. You first have to detect an incident and be able to identify it something wrong is happening. What are the tools and technologies that we can use to detect something wrong? Your own sense of something going wrong is usually the one of the first parts that we start with. I mean, there's going to be an instinct on, on that. Um, you can you get a feel for what isn't a problem after a period of time. Other than that, there's a lot of different products that you'll be using. Um, something as simple as just making sure that you've got um, you know logging enabled on any sensitive boxes and someone that goes and checks and finds out, have has someone been scanning the range of IPs that point here? I mean, that's your very first check. And the, the question of what, what you use for incident response for detection is, is so large, it would just turn into a list of vendors if I went at it at this point. Okay. But ultimately, it's use your head, use your toolkit. And if something seems like it's wrong, you're probably not wrong to investigate further. Yeah, what I wanted to get at is that companies don't start from scratch listing by themselves. Oh, we have to put a log here for the database or whitelist. They absolutely start from scratch. Oh, they do. Oh, they absolutely do it badly. Yeah. Well, what I meant then, I guess, is you can leverage what other people have learned through some vendors or existing tools, right? Or not really. And not not really. Okay. And, the, and the, Well, you can on a vendor basis, but the challenge there, remember, is it's very, very difficult to admit a mistake publicly, even if it was something that didn't hurt anyone. Right, that's true. Because you want to look competent if you're a company. So it is one of the reasons why that near-miss research is really important. Because um, here's an example of something that could have gone wrong but didn't because we caught it in time, and here's the lessons we learned, mm -hmm. is a way more popular public statement than you know, oh my God, we're sorry, here's 17 lawyers. So that's the challenge that we're looking at because actually companies don't learn from each other in the way that they should and could on the concept of incident response. There's no, for instance, standard template form for incident response reporting. It's all done internally at almost any company. And you want to get a little bit scared. A lot of the time it's just done through email. Oh, wow. So good records of previous incidents um, often are not available to people. Mm -hmm. That's closely guarded information, and it's often covered under NDA. It's often covered under making sure that you, you know, you, you can't go from company to company and expose the faults and flaws of your previous company to your new one. That's true. Because it's probably against your contract. And also, it's not ethical to reveal things that you have promised to keep secret. But that is certainly a hindrance in learning how to do incident response. Yeah. So we've been talking about detection and how companies 
have their own processes, they start from scratch ideally. But once we detect an issue, how does the response differ between a large breach and a small breach? I guess we talked a little bit about this earlier. It should not differ in kind, only in degree. So the difference between a large breach and a small breach is in a team that I am running, if it is, and you can't really tell initially mm-hmm. between the difference between a large and a small breach. We often don't know what has happened until the very end of the situation. And so there is definitely a tendency to treat everything as 8.7 on the Richter scale until proven otherwise, which is good. It's good to treat something as important until proven otherwise. But as soon as you understand you know, look, this this doesn't appear to have been a major breach. One box was affected. There was no pivot off of it. And now it's time to, yes, we need to do incident response, but nothing, no data was breached. No confidential information was lost. You know, this is just a network improvement opportunity. Okay. At that point, as someone running an incident response team, I typically would assign a more junior person to run that incident response so that as many people as possible on my team have the experience of how to run an incident from beginning to end with always the understanding that, that folk can can step in because the question of how you do incident response is the same as how you train incident response. Mm-hmm. You have to start with the fact that everyone needs to know how to do it and how to run it from the top. Because once you do that, you know what information the person running the response needs to get from you. And you also have a better feel for prioritizing information. So yeah, it's, it's really key there. So the difference between large and small breach is you still have an incident response commander. You still have the write-up. You still have the investigation. You still have isolation and evaluation of boxes that might have been touched. You still have to do the forensic recovery later. You know, you still have to do all those things. And the question at that point is just how rapid, how much, how many resources do you devote to it? What is the level of the people devoted to it? How long do you want to spend on the, the postmortem? And more importantly than anything else, Someone, someplace must write down at least three things they learned and make sure that those are implemented as rules in the future, Yeah, <laughs> you know, in, a, in an automated network sense. What about notifying the individuals whose data has been leaked? When is it a good time to report this? So that we're talking, I'm guessing, a, a major breach, something where personal or confidential information was, was affected. Yeah, for example, for Equifax, what would you have expected? Not the six weeks I think it took them. Well, there's a difference between being a product and being a consumer. Right. And that's one of the major challenges there. Because remember, Equifax doesn't get paid by you or me. They get paid by financial institutions. That's true. They weren't playing by the rules you think they were playing by. Their responsibility was to their customers, to the banks that buy their information. Their responsibility isn't to the people whose data they're collecting. Move entirely away from the notion that Equifax, I mean, on on a moral basis, Mm -hmm. on an ethical basis, of course there's this responsibility. But on a fiduciary basis, it's entirely likely that the structure of contracts that these credit unions have makes them have to prioritize notifying their customers before any consumer victims. Yeah. And their customers are the people that pay them, not you or me. So we don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Banks, more lending institutions, anything along those lines. Now, the correct answer is as soon as possible to try to mitigate any harm that can be done to the people who have been who've been compromised. Mm-hmm. And that's a moral and ethical answer. And of course, we strive to get as close as possible to that. Now, mm-hmm. there is a responsibility to not make the situation worse 
And that is just going to be judgment and calm, cool, level-headed judgment every time something like this happens. And it will keep happening. It just flat will. Yeah. And what I also like that I sometimes see companies doing things on behalf of their consumers, like they would say, we had a breach of passwords, and then we've reset your password automatically to avoid more things going wrong. Yes. And that right there is a really good example of it. Often, you may actually delay telling everyone with something like, and there's there's reasons to do it either way in a bad situation. But if you're in a company where your your passwords have potentially been breached, Waiting a few extra hours to drop into place a forced reset of all passwords in the company uh, for every customer may be the better and more wise choice to keep more people safe because otherwise your servers could just get hammered. And then you've got incident response in terms of public relations and stuff like that. You have to start handling. Often you want to get that solution in place. Now, of course, you do not want to hold off forever on doing that for the internal convenience of the company. Mm -hmm. That's wrong. But I can find a great deal of justification in waiting a couple of extra hours to drop the technical solution in place to make sure that no one else is hurt and then telling people. I can find justification for that. Now, waiting months or years to disclose a major vulnerability that has a deep impact on your business because you didn't want to peeve the shareholders. No, that's not appropriate. It's not moral. I don't. It's most of the time it's not legal. And you'll find that beginning to be more and more reflected in the regulatory climate, I think. Yes, you mentioned the word legal. So what you're saying is that for a certain types of breaches, you are obligated to inform like what the attack was and things like that, right? That can get it interpreted a lot of different ways. But there's a lot of corporate regulation in the United States, like Sarbanes-Oxley, mm-hmm. that requires, and PCI compliance, that requires certain kinds of notification and actions be taken to keep people safe and to prioritize doing the right thing over short-term gains. We hope it works the way that we want it to work. But ultimately, you need to have people who are running that kind of incident response who, who feel a strong sense of responsibility to the people they're keeping safe. Well, we've been talking about incident response and types of breaches and what we can do. Before we finish, I want to shift the topic and talk about your book, Women in Tech. Mm -hmm. I really like the reason, one of the reasons why you wrote this is because you're a woman in technology. You worked in technical aspects and sometimes people that write about this topic, they haven't even been on that side. They're just an outsider perspective on this. Yeah. What I want to focus on is the how to be an ally portion. Because I found men are listening to the show also because it's a technical show. Mm -hmm. So I have both men and women listening. But I want to focus on this ally part. What are some examples where men can be an ally for women in technology? Well, it's a complicated question with a couple of simple off-the-cuff answers. But I think if I was going to start from where you started there, I would note Yeah, it's the reason that I wrote this, the reason that the people that participated in it did was because we had seen so many books out there by people, sometimes even women who may be part of tech companies, or they may be in something you might call like a meta-technical occupation, like doing digital marketing, right? But not in technology, not coding, right? Mm -hmm. Or developing solutions. And we've seen that happen a lot. And I mean, just, you know, I see that happen now where people who are very much kind of into 
they're more into the publicity elements of technology and managing communities, which this is a very important part of the tech world. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why Women in Tech was written by eight programmers. We are all of us engineers, right? Engineers, developers, coders, sysadmins, hackers. This book was written by people who sit at a keyboard all day long. And, you know, we took a brief breather to write a chapter or two here or there. Yeah. And you're right. That means that we've got this perspective on the ground that is a a really deep one. And one of the biggest perspectives that we've had, I think it's frustrating to see that you must, as a woman, be twice as good, three times as good to get some of the same opportunities that someone with average skills who's a man might get. You mentioned before that I'm a cybersecurity fellow at New America, which is a great think tank for doing work on public policy involving information security. Mm-hmm. I was having a great conversation there with uh, one of the folks there who was saying, how do we become good allies? And this turned into a, a great kind of cocktail conversation with folk all around us. Yeah. And another gentleman said, here's something that I've tried before. I tried, um, you know, I've tried recommending women on panels. And I said, let me ask you to do this instead. Instead of thinking of the top five women you can always think of and recommending that they be the only woman on you know six different panels, um, what I want you to do is I want you to find a mediocre woman programmer and put her on a panel with mediocre male programmers. And they stared at me like I had grown a 14th head. And I said, the challenge we're having here is there's survivorship bias with women who get to the top in technology. We've almost had to forget how much better we've had to be And so what I want to see people do is give equal amounts of chances to average women developers. I see. Put them on panels in the same number as average male developers. And you just, you flatly don't see that. You will get five guys that you've never heard of before and one woman who's written seven books and has every letter on earth behind her name besides Q. I see. So, yeah. So one of the greatest ally acts you can do is level women and men properly when it comes to their skill set and give them the same opportunities based on that. That's a really good point. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Well, Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. I have had such a wonderful time. And if there's any one thing that I can leave your listeners with, it is that no one's story is the same as anyone else's. I learned more than anyone else writing this book. I always learn more than anyone else in incident response in the work that I do because I do love to teach. And if there's any one thing that I could leave your listeners with, it is if you know one more thing than the person you're talking to, you know enough to be their mentor. Give information away as fast as you can because it's the only way to get more of it and get help and make this world a better place. Spend that time teaching other people and that's how your brain gets to be better. Yes, definitely. Well, Tara, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure.